to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Janae Richmond, Director of Marketing and Membership, and Ryan Schlegel, Director of Research for the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy. Janae, Ryan, thank you both so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Steve. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Um, I asked for some time from you to talk about a specific report uh, that um, you both worked on with other people, uh, a, a big collaborative effort, uh, but it is one part of a broader context of the work of the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy. And I'm wondering, Janae, if I could just ask you to talk a little bit about what that organization is, who, who, are, who makes that up, what is your mission? Sure, thank you for having us again. Uh, so NCRP was founded in the 70s. There was a conversation happening about the philanthropic sector, but missing from it was a key component, which was uh, nonprofit leaders and people in communities. And so some uh, nonprofit leaders, activists, people in communities got together to kind of add their perspective to uh, that discussion. And they realized that there was a long-term need for a voice like that in the sector. And so they founded NCRP. Um, and we're still very true to our original founding. Uh, we were created to add those perspectives and also to uh, educate the sector on how they can support marginalized communities and advocacy and organizing efforts in, in order to cure systemic problems in our country. Uh, Ryan, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Well, that sounds right. I mean, I think it's worth uh, emphasizing in our kind of origin story, especially given the context for this conversation that um, we've always, NCRP has always thought of itself as sort of um, with one foot inside of the philanthropic sector and one foot outside of it, um, being kind of a, a critical friend to philanthropy. Um, and, you know, it's also worth noting that we are 100%, well, not 100%, but close to 100% foundation funded. And so um, I often like to um, start off with the joke that we've been fighting that the earth, not fighting, been biting the hand that feeds us <laughs> for the last 50 or so years, um, which again, I think is useful context, especially for this conversation. <laughs> right. It's important to identify that not uh, every foundation treats this conversation equally. There are some who are willing to kick in some resources to really understand the nature of the problem, maybe even to take some more aggressive steps to start correcting things. Uh, not everybody participates the same way way, but it's good then to acknowledge some people who are unafraid of an open conversation are throwing some dollars on the table to help pay for this work. That's great. Um, but in that context, it does give you that opportunity to really understand where we are um, in 2020. And the report that asked that got me to ask for some of your time specifically, uh, Black Funding Denied, uh, about community foundation support for Black communities. So um, Ryan, as the Director of Research, could I ask you to just talk a little bit about um, the um, origin of this particular piece of research, this report, and uh, how the, the committee decided to get started on this? Yeah, sure. So, um, so again, the, the research, the title for the research is, is Black Funding Denied. We released it in uh, late August of, of 2020. Um, and the, the big kind of headline finding from that research was that of the, uh, or across the 25 community foundations that we looked at, only 1% of the, the total grant making from those 25 foundations uh, between 2016 and 2018 was designated for this explicit benefit of Black communities, just 1%, um, despite the fact that 15% of the those 25 um, community foundations respective city populations um, is black. Um, so, so that again was sort of the, the headline finding there. Um, and you know, it, it probably won't surprise your audience to hear that the, the 
um, the sort of precipitating event for this research was uh, the, the George Floyd uprisings that were sparked um, in May and June by the murder of George Floyd there in the Twin Cities, Steve, where you're based. Um, but really this conversation about to what extent are institutional funders uh, supporting marginalized people broadly speaking, but uh, people of color more specifically and black people most specifically. Um, that's a conversation that NCRP has been a part of um, for as long as we've been around since the 70s. Um, we've uh, always taken the stance that institutional givers should be devoting more of their resources than they currently are to supporting marginalized people, broadly defined people of color more specifically. Um, our most recent research has shown that only about a third of total uh, U.S. Foundation domestic grant making supports marginalized people, only a third, and that's um, that's a group of people who includes low-income people, people of color, women and girls, LGBTQ people, etc. In short, it's more than a third of the population of the United States, for sure. Um, and, you know, again, re recent research by some of our colleagues, like the Philanthropic Initiative for Racial Equity, uh, ABFI, and others in the space have, have shown that support for people of color, again, across the foundation ecosystem has been quite stubborn, sitting at just about, you know, between 8 and 10% of all domestic grant making over the years of data that we have, um, which, you know, again, is, is abysmally low in a country where you know, wealth, power, and opportunity are so inequitably distributed according to race. Um, and so again, it's, it's, it's something that NCRP has thought about for a long time. We've been in this conversation for a long time along with our allies, as I mentioned, pre abfi and others. But the, the George Floyd uprisings and the renewed uh, call by Black organizers, Black community leaders, and their allies for justice uh, not just not just safety for black people, but justice and, and reparative justice, um, I think inspired this kind of a new look at, uh, at grant making for black communities that was focused specifically on community foundations. And, and the reason why sort of we and our nonprofit members decided to focus on community foundations specifically, and I'll let Janae speak in a moment about the role that our nonprofit members played in this. But the reason why we decided to focus specifically on community foundations was that, you know, community foundations are distinct. They are they are um, unique in the in the foundation ecosystem, the grant making ecosystem, because of their uh, their very specific kind of relationship to community, right? I mean, they are, you know, institutional philanthropy is notoriously unaccountable and undemocratic across the board, but um, that's, you know, a little bit more complicated when we're talking about community foundations who, who, you know, have institutionalized relationships with specific places, specific people, um, and who, you know, by rights also ought to, you know, have some kind of accountability relationship with those communities as well. And so, you know, we thought that focusing on community foundations was potentially a, a high, um, we, we thought that there was a lot of potential for positive change there just because of sort of that relationship and, and the potential for some really positive accountability and change that could come out of it if the, the right kind of resources and, and research was brought to bear. Um, but our, our nonprofit members and especially our Black-led members had an important role to play in the origins of this project too. And I wanna give that, I wanna give Janae an opportunity to speak to that as well. Thanks. Um, so yeah, I would say that, um, you know, the good thing about being in an organization that's pretty diverse in many ways is that when things happen that impact different communities, you 
have a ready-made, you know, group of people who can discuss it and have like honest, uh, truthful discussions about it. And so, uh, you know, I think this is a testament to the diversity at NCRP. When we first, you know, um, experienced the murder of George Floyd via video, a cell phone video, and, you know, the days and weeks that followed that, uh, it was obvious that NCRP as a staff had to come together to talk about it. And so I think there something surfaced about how people were feeling and, uh, you know, what we wanted to do uh, as an entity that works in philanthropy to uh, help the situation. Um, and this is not new to us. We have lots of relationships with nonprofits, either through our membership program or just through our work out in the sector. And so, you know, it's been years. I've been at NCRP for almost six years now, and uh, you hear, you know, the same things over and over again. So uh, it was, you know, us already knowing their experience well because we walked through their experience in the philanthropic sector with them. Um, and then it was, you know, less check and bring folks together. And so it was an opportunity for folks to join us, um, Black-led organizations to discuss their experience, how they were interpreting recent events and you know what they wanted to see going forward. And so that was really something that fed into the work that we put together. So for those that haven't read the report yet, I will have that linked in the show notes and uh, people can just kind of go in. It's actually um, not hard to just spend a few minutes and really understand the basics of uh, what was put together, how it was done. I think it's a really nicely done job of being fairly concise, but direct. Here's what we um, wanted to find out. Here's the, the methodology that we used to get there, those pieces. Uh, but I, I think it's um, it, it's a moment of trying to have all of those smaller mid-sized nonprofits and especially those that are led by um, uh, communities of color and, and by black communities specifically to feel that um, that gut check against what their own experience has been, that it sometimes feels very isolating to be, well, we applied and we're not granted in this particular round, um, but there were, you know, X hundreds of applications and, you know, only so many people get funded. You know, how do, how do we know that it's, uh, you know, one that we're we're part of a, a systemic issue versus, you know, there's just something about our particular application. And I think this moment of let's try to contextualize that outside of any one individual anecdotal experience and try to give that more um, connection. So uh, Janae, I think you were talking a little bit about feeling that, that um, anecdotal connection. Do you think there was other data points too, or was it just lots of members that were like, I'm not feeling like we're really getting connected in the way that we probably ought to be for the work we're doing in community. So I can speak to, you know, some of the conversations that I've had um, more recently and even in the past. So I can mm -hmm. think of organizations who we gave advice to around COVID and they were able to come back to us months later and say, you know, I did everything that you told me to do. Um, and I still have little fruit to show for yeah. the efforts that I've made. Uh, and then, you know, I can think of conversations from years past where there was a black male who was uh, transitioning into leadership of a nonprofit. He was taking the helm of that organization from a white woman. And um, he told me that the conversations that he was having that he had had previously, because I think he spent some time in like a deputy position um, until she transitioned and he was decided upon as the new leader. Um, so the conversations from when he was in the room with her were much different from the conversations that he had by himself. 
Um, mm -hmm. There were, you know, all of a sudden concerns about capacity and other kind of coded language that for many Black people, it has other meaning. Um, we can kind of, you know, see that from a mile away and really understand what people are getting at. So uh, I think it's all of these things that really factored into how we were able to show up in this moment. Uh, it wasn't just, you know, related to things that happened this summer. Uh, it's been a lot in the in the making <laughs> over the years. Right. And somebody, I think, taking that moment of hearing those stories and, and thinking, how do we help, you know, add that context? One of the challenges that I see in that you've really tried to address well here is just the opacity of philanthropic giving as a rule. And I think part of the challenge here is what's the data set that you can get to try to understand this. And the report talks about using candid data, uh, you know, the former uh, GuideStar uh, now combined entity with Foundation Online folks uh, to um, understand what we could from the public data that's being um, sorted through that source. So, Ryan, can you talk about you know um, the challenge of trying to work with data sets that maybe aren't as complete as you would like them to be? But you know, uh, how do we how do we move forward when we don't have access to good data? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So. Uh... Where do you even start? <laughs> so yeah, the, I would say, you know, yes, the, the source for this research and for most of NCRP's, um, most of the data that we report that's related to grant making, quantitative data on grant making comes from Candid, which as you've said, is the result of a merger between Foundation Center and GuideStar in early 2019. Um, and Candid is an organization that uh, does a lot of wonderful work. They have, I, I know and work closely with a lot of the folks at Candid, um, and, and so I want to be clear that when I express any um, disappointment or frustration with the state of data in the sector, I think that I want to be clear that it's a shared responsibility and that this isn't right. something that I'm, I'm laying solely at the feet of Candid, right? Like we all choose, I think, um, the, the data infrastructure that we have each day. And I can talk a little bit about what I mean by that. But, um, but yeah, so Candid takes uh, what is public information, right, and and puts it through their system to, to give us something that is, I think, much more useful than the public information that's available to us. So more specifically, Candid takes the public disclosure that's required of all grant making foundations to the IRS, um, and they pass all of those all of those grants, all of those pieces of grants data, which you know don't really have a lot of illuminating information attached to them usually, right? I mean, you have the the grant making organization, you have the recipient organization, you have the fiscal year of the grant. Um, and sometimes you'll have like grant duration and occasionally you'll also see a grant description attached to it in the in the actual IRS disclosures on what what's called their form 990. But very often all you have is those first three data points. You have the the originating institution, the recipient institution and the well I should say for the amount and the fiscal year mm -hmm. and nothing more. And so Candid has to do a lot of work um, in both collecting, sort of um, aug augmenting their data with information that they collect directly from foundations uh, within for, and with information they collect uh, indirectly, sort of just by doing their own research um, into organizations, both foundations and recipient organizations. Um, so they do a lot of coding work, right? They're doing a lot of work to sort of add information to those grant records and say, okay, this, you know, we know based on our research, this was a grant for X populations, for Y strategy, for, you know, Z sort of subject area, right? Um, but, they, you know, there's also a lot of technical stuff that goes into it, right? I mean, there's the, the volume of grants that's, that's uh, the volume of grants data that's made public every year is enormous and grows every year. 
Uh, and so it's also, you know, it's it's not a small technical challenge either, either to pass all of that through, again, candid system and come out on the other side with something that is, you know, much more valuable, right? It's it's not reams and reams of PDF files of Forms 990 sitting on an IRS server. It's uh, a one, you know, sort of global database of, you know, as much grant making data as Candid can get its hands on for most of the grant making institutions in the United States and even some internationally. Um, and that grant making data, once Candid finishes it with it, has, like I said, information attached to it, like which populations were meant to benefit from this money. And was this a grant for health or for education or for perhaps a more niche uh, subject like community organizing or education equity or, you know, there's all kinds of subject codes that they use. Um, and so, yeah, Candid, Candid has for a while been, and I think will continue to be for the foreseeable future, the sort of gold standard of, of um, on you know, quantitative data, source of quantitative data for the sector. But that's not to say that there aren't challenges. And I think you, know, you saw this after the release of the report and we can get into a little bit of the foundation reaction, Steve, if you'd like to, but I'll just, I'll just sort of anticipate that question by saying that mm -hmm. um, I think the, the, the challenges with the data and what a lot of the foundations pointed out who were, who were critical of the report after its release, the challenges with the data are, uh, are not insignificant, right? I mean, the, the first one, right? And I, I would say this isn't so much a challenge as it is just the difference in the interpretation of the data between NCRP and some of our allies versus the way that, for example, some of the community foundations who were mentioned in the research interpreted it. But we, the, the, we measured specifically and, and Candid's processes are meant to measure specifically support that um, has an explicit intended beneficiary that is black people, right? Black communities. Um, and, and the explicit is really the, the word that's doing the most work there um, because we recognize, right, that a lot of, because of the ways that race intersects with uh, class and other sort of factors of, of privilege and oppression in our, in our country, we recognize that, for example, a giving strategy, a, a grant making strategy that's focused on alleviating extreme poverty um, just to take an example, is one that's probably going to impact, is going to touch a lot of Black folks, right? A lot of Black communities just because of the disproportional poverty rates among Black communities. Um, and, and yet that kind of approach that is that, that um, sort of coincidentally, or, or I shouldn't say coincidentally, incidentally reaches Black people um, without explicit intent is not what we tried to measure in this research. It's not what Candid measures in their population beneficiary codes. And so we were quite clear, I think, that this, this you know, 1% of community foundation resources that we measured is grant making that was for the explicit intended benefit of Black communities. Um, which is not to say that there wasn't, you know, there aren't other dollars that are reaching Black communities just coincidentally, but again, we sort of, all of our research in the past on, on sort of what good grant making looks like and what good equitable grant making looks like in addition to grant, in addition to research by some of our partner organizations, like again, Philanthropic Initiative for Racial Equity, PRE, and AbbVie has shown that that, that kind of explicit intent uh, behind a, a grant making strategy um, is really the best way to be effective, right? And that uh, without an explicit intent to target specific marginalized people, those people often remain marginalized. <laughs> um, and so, um, so yeah, we, 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 again, used candid data for this, which, which measures explicit intended support for specific communities. Um, and I think that's, that's important for folks to understand when they're thinking about sort of the methodology here and, and how to interpret it. Um, 
hopefully that answered that answered part of your question. Sue. Yeah, it, it does. And I think that there's um, more to get into with that about how foundations are required to report because we're working within that framework. Uh, but it could be that we could be getting better data from our partners in philanthropy if they agreed to help collect and share it, uh, which I think is problematic. And Janae, I wanted to kind of ask you about your experience on this. I, by the way, I should have mentioned that uh, Janae and, and Ryan are two of the people that are credited on this report. There are several others, and, and we certainly don't want to minimize the roles of all collaborators in participating in this. But as you and your team got together to think this through, um, I think there's just got to be that ongoing moment of, you know, the NCRP has been here asking for more transparency for decades before this report came out. We don't really have what I would view anyway as um, the level of transparency that we need to evaluate these things. So we work with the data that is available, but I don't know that it is um, anything that anybody um, seeking to understand these issues really feels like is good. So as as one of the participants in that group having to decide what are we going to roll with, uh, how do you weigh, you know, going with this information versus what you've been maybe advocating to be a little bit more public or transparent about over the years? So I'll actually defer to Ryan because okay. I think he'll have uh, a bit more, but what I can say uh, as far as transparency, so my background uh, prior to working at NCRP is working on community organizing, political organizing. Uh, and it was actually that experience, which, um, you know, the resources get sucked up as soon as an election cycle is over, or whatever the case may be, uh, which made me want to take a longer term approach to this. Uh, and so I always rely on my experience within communities um, and thinking about why transparency is so important. Uh, we have people who, you know, are meaningful contributors to their communities. Um, and even if they weren't, they're still a part of their communities. Uh, and, you know, the burden that is placed on people, especially people who are within marginalized uh, communities, is so great uh, to make people jump through extra hoops to you know, try to interpret something that is not their thing. For me, philanthropy was not something that I grew up being well-versed in. Uh, it took me uh, a good while at NCRP before I started to get the hang of this. Uh, I think it's just, it's a good practice to always be as transparent as possible, to be as open as possible, to involve those people in the process of what's happening in their community. And so for me, that's kind of the perspective that I look at this as to why it's so important. Um, and the ways that it can happen. Uh, we've seen a lot of folks kind of uh, step up and, and help some community foundations take more of a step into uh, being more transparent and um, allowing communities to participate in the grant making process. Um, and so for me, that is why it is the utmost uh, of importance. Communities are crucial to this country. Um, and so, you know, the people with this institutional power should make sure that the information that they have is easily accessible to the folks who need it. And yeah, Ryan, so let me jump in and just clarify a little on that before you jump in, Ryan, about that. Um, um, what am I trying to get at with that transparency piece of it? Because I think, you know, um, lauding GuideStar, um, well, pardon me, Candid, um, as much as, as a, uh, we need to for this conversation is well and good, but I think that they are hobbled in this process intentionally, that um, there, there have been those that don't want to try to be 
um, uh, more aggressive in trying to slice this data up so that we can really understand what's happening. In part, I will throw out there again as a personal observation, and I'm happy to have you tell me that I'm wrong on this, um, protecting the growing field of donor advised funds. And I think as community foundations, uh, that is um, one of these areas where we really have to kind of look at change and how things are happening. So uh, as you think about this conversation with what data you, you were able to work with and the maybe reluctance of some community foundations in particular to think about what is that process of how everything is decided and maybe directed and um, whatnot, if you can only work with what's um, designated through those things, uh, um, do you feel some of the pushback may be around how much money has been moved in the last several years into that particular giving field, which is largely a community foundation space? Yeah, so so there's a lot, a lot to unpack there, Steve. But by and large, you are singing my song, so let's get into okay. it. But I I would say like let's let's leave DAFs aside for one moment and circle okay. back. I think so on the on the issue of disclosure. So I think you're right that um, I think that the status quo around like data accessibility and disclosure around grant making in the field should scandalize all of us. It scandalizes me constantly. Um, and I feel like it's something that not enough people are paying attention to and speaking about. So, so foundations are required to disclose their grant making, right? There is no avoiding disclosure. It is a, it is a legal requirement by the IRS. They're compelled to do that. Um, what they're not compelled to do is to do it in a timely fashion, um, in a format that's accessible, right? So like, um, there, there. Are, uh, how do I want to put this? There are surely technical um, challenges that would need to be surmounted in order for the philanthropic sector to have something close to like a real-time system of grant-making data disclosure, right? And by that I mean like, you know, let's say within, let's be really ambitious and say within a quarter. <laughs> of the grant being made, uh, th that, is, that is public in some kind of global database of grant making that's accessible, um, and I mean meaningfully accessible to, to anyone who wants to, to see it. Um, there, are, there are surely technical challenges that we need to be overcome for us to get to that point. I do not think that those technical challenges are insurmountable. I think that it's a problem of resource allocation and political will, um, and not one of just like not being able to do it for some kind of technical or, or even legal um, reason. Um, so, so yeah, I think, you know, and you see this if you read, you know, for example, the 10 year strategic framework, which um, the, I should be specific, the candid 10 year strategic plan, which they published in summer of 2020, which I encourage everyone to go out and take a look at. It's available on their website. You see that in their, in their plan where they say themselves that they aspire to be a, a global and real time system of grant making data disclosure for the sector. Um, and that they, they aspire to, to achieve that sometime in the next 10 years. I think it's gonna take a lot to get there. I think it's gonna take a lot of resources. And again, it's gonna take a lot of political will because um, you know, I think my experience working in, in research specifically and in trying to bring especially quantitative data on grant making to bear about sort of in, in public conversations about what good grant making looks like, what just grant making looks like. My experience is that really it is foundations and donors who benefit from our lack of a real time or something close to a real time data disclosure system. Um, and, and I'll be, I'll be uh, super frank about what I mean. Um, 
I'm going to I'm going to use two examples that are quite recent, and I do not mean at all to knock either of these organizations. They are both like great organizations with super smart people doing great work. But the Center for Effective Philanthropy, Center on Effective Philanthropy, CEP, um, and uh, the Evans School of Public Policy at University of Washington both recently uh, published some research that tries to answer the question of like how are foundations reacting to the COVID crisis, to the um, racial justice uprisings of 2020? How are they changing practice, if at all? And both of them rely almost completely on survey data, on asking foundation leadership themselves, how are you responding? How are you performing? Grade yourself, essentially, uh, on, on how you've responded in 2020 to you know unprecedented once-in-a-generation crises. Um, and of course, the, 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 the result of that research is that they're doing wonderfully, that, they, that they've changed practices and that, you know, I mean, if you see the headlines in the Chronicle and in, in, in other sector outlets, it says like foundations adopt, adopt racial equity practice, racial equity grant making practices, right? And it's, it's the kind of thing that like sets my hair on fire and sets, you know, if you go to the, my, my, co my colleague and friend, Lori Villarosa, who runs um, the Philanthropic Initiative for Racial Equity, you should all follow her on Twitter at RJ Grantmakers, sets her hair on fire. And it's like, but that, so that is what I mean by like the, the people who benefit from our not having a real time, you know, global data disclosure system here are the foundations themselves. Because do I think that they're lying when they say that they're doing wonderfully? No, of course not. I think that they genuinely believe that, they're, that they've changed practices and that they're doing better. And it may very well be the case that they have. I hope that they have. Um, I have reason to be skeptical, but <laughs> I hope that they have mm -hmm. changed it. And, and I wish that we had a way to know for sure without having to wait several years, because as it stands now, uh, we will not likely have um, a sort of comprehensive picture of 2020 grant making until 2022. Um, so yeah, go, Steve, go ahead. Well, I, I think one of the challenges that I'm seeing here is, you know, we're, uh, in terms of the transparency stuff is we're seeing the outcomes or the outputs rather uh, from um, these community foundations that you looked at specifically, um, and not necessarily the inputs that went into those decisions. So I think one of the challenges, um, and Janae, I'd love you to kind of jump in on, on this that I see anyway, uh, um, is working for that smaller mid-size uh, charity, you you throw your best foot forward, you, you describe your programs, the work that needs to be done, the leadership that's in place, all those things. And you get that no, and it's really hard for you to go, well, you know, I, I feel like we did a good job of making our case, but you know, somebody's going to get told no. And it's hard for us to say who, who got the yes against who else was asking. And here's the, the thing that I think is, is challenging when you only get the outcome of here's who we decided to make grants to is we don't know how many um, applications from uh, Black-led communities, benefiting Black-led communities, whatnot, we're, we're in that pipeline. We don't get to see that. And, and that's really hard, I think, as you talk to members and others that are supporting this work to, to feel like, am I alone here? Is it just me? Are, are we being gaslit? You know, all those kinds of questions that come up uh, of when you look at the end result, it's hard to say, well, I wish they hadn't funded, you know, X, Y, or Z. They tend to be fine organizations and, and you're not opposed to them. But I also think it doesn't tell the full story of, the range of organizations that were seeking support that maybe didn't get that same shake as organization X, Y, or Z got. Yeah, you raise a really, really good point. Um, so one of the things that we try to do at NCRP is in our membership program, we have, you know, lots of spaces for our members to talk to each other, to help each other through this. So um, I've found that it has been really helpful to have 
you know, this type of community space. Uh, there was a time, I want to say this was like maybe early 2017, where um, I decided to like pull together some members. And it was kind of in a way that was a little bit outside of NCRP's wheelhouse. But I was like, you know what? I think people need like this community space. There's been a lot of stuff happening. Uh, it's been like two months. It's felt like three years and two months. And um, I know that I'm feeling it. And I wonder if other folks are too. And it was uh, incredible how that really, you know, resonated with people and people really needed that space. And so, um, you know, us being uh, around to kind of hold those spaces for nonprofit leaders and uh, people working on, you know, different programs and trying to do fundraising for these organizations is just really crucial. Um, you know, I'm thinking of, I'm trying to think of the details that I want to go into this, but I'll just say that uh, even living through this pandemic and, you know, very early on, I think we all had our inklings that it was going to, you know, impact certain communities more so than other people. Um, for one, you know, we could just look at child care and some of the mechanics as they started to play out. You could definitely see how that would impact some folks even more. Um, I remember, you know, for myself, when uh, some of the data started to get released about, you know, the numbers and the demographics. Um, I'm from Chicago. And so I literally remember the day when I, uh, that news came to me that I think at the time they were reporting like 70% of the deaths uh, were in the black community in Chicago um, and literally took my breath away. I don't think I've ever had that experience. And so, you know, for the last several months I've been working with and in community with nonprofit leaders who are a part of these communities. So they are experiencing things where they should literally be, you know, sitting down, taking care of themselves, grieving um, and going through that process because it's been, you know, waves of, um, of that hitting them um, and they are doing that. They're caring for their families. They're taking care of children at home. They're trying to keep themselves safe. Um, you know, they are trying to fundraise and, you know, it's something to go into work every day and to still approach these entities that you don't even know if they're going to, you know, give you a fair shake, but you go anyway, because you really love the people, um, who, you know, whatever your work is trying to benefit, um, and you constantly get these no's. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's been frustrating. Um, I'm thankful to be in community with folks. I'm thankful that we have this support system in place that we're able to rely on each other and be honest. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful for the work we've done in the past years to make sure we have very honest spaces where people can show up as their full selves and their full experiences. Um, but for sure, you know, when you think about that, I don't know that other people um, who are outside of these communities of color, outside of black communities, are you know necessarily having those exact experiences in this moment and so um you know that is why all of this is so important right we can call out what we can see obviously in the data that's publicly available but i do think gathering more of that information about you know how many of these types of organizations were knocking on the door and trying to have those conversations and we're having applications that maybe were specifically directed to benefit those most impacted communities all that stuff that we're talking about um, and we just can't verify that with anything public uh, so i think you know that kind of throws the question back at the foundations who may feel like well this is an unfair fair representation of what you know we're actually doing in community that we're benefiting more people to say tell us more 
about, you know, who applied, why did, what's the decision criteria that you feel you were applying there? Cause I've filled out plenty of grant applications. I see what they say, but I'd love to see more information uh, about how do we interpret the, um, the amount of uh, applications that came in against those that actually got measured in that criteria. Do, do outside observers feel that same experience of, you know, that was the right call and the right decision, or is that maybe wouldn't be supported by a broader group of the public if we could see it? Uh, Ryan, I know that that data is not sitting around for us to look at, but uh, how do you try to get to a better place of understanding more of the actual um, equity of some of these conversations and how these decisions are getting made? And recognizing we are running a little short on time, and I do want to talk a little bit more about why community foundations, specifically roles of donor advised funds, but let me kind of just ask you to hit that last part first, and then we'll try to come back to some of those other things. Um. Yeah, so so it's a great question. I think um, so. I'll I'll, t I'll give like a tiny anecdote that I think will maybe help illuminate this. So when when part of the pushback that we got, as I've already said, from community foundations when we published this research was, well, this isn't fair because you're not counting all of these dollars that we, for example, give for childcare, which mm -hmm. obviously reaches Black folks in our community, or give for anti-poverty stuff that reaches Black folks in our community. Um, and and one funder specifically, I, I believe, if I'm not remember, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, said, you know, this is ridiculous because we give all of this money, you know, tens of millions of dollars every year to. It was either the United Way or the Y. I don't remember mm -hmm. which. It was one of those two, in our city, which you know, our city is majority black. So how can you say that this that you know only you know whatever it was, two percent of our grant making is reaching black communities, and. You know, I think the response to that has to be, Steve, something along the lines of what you were just saying, which is like, let's open up this process a little bit. Like, let's, let's, you know, shine some light in and, and, and not, it's not even just a case of like, you know, sunlight being a good disinfectant, because I, I want to be clear, I don't think anything sort of, I don't think anything untoward or malicious is going on here. I think that it really is just like that community foundations, um, just like all foundations are, a part of a white dominated sector that is built on uh, on racist capitalism, on extraction and exploitation of especially the, the labor and, and assets of people of color. And so I think that like, it's just, there's a lot of that history and that, that sort of um, in, in the DNA of the organization that needs to be overcome. And so I think like, to your point, Steve, right? Like let's, let's open up the process and let's say like, okay, so you, you, you know, foundation CEO, you, it, it is your assertion, right? that making a $10 million grant to the United Way of, I'm just gonna pick, you know, the United Way of Seattle, let's say, is a, is a, is a strategy, is a racial equity grant making strategy, right? Like it, you're, you're saying that that is a way for your, your dollars to reach black communities. And I, what I would say to that is like, okay, well, let's, let's you know, ask black communities. Like, let, let's go to black folks who are your constituents, right? And let's have some kind of process of, of like disclosure and, um, input and and like processing together and and co-strategizing right like it, it is it, it's it should not be um sort of a, a, a foundation's sort of sole responsibility to decide like well we're giving grants to the united way and the why and that means that like we sort of check that box on on grant making reaching black folks like that that's just not acceptable. It's not, I don't think a responsible and, and effective way to do grant making. And I think a much better way, again, Steve, along the lines of what you're suggesting would be to open up that process and invite the community in, which brings us right back to the reason why community foundations were our chosen focus here for this project is because like community foundations are unique in the sector in that like that process of bringing in community 
is should you know sensibly be much easier for them than it would be for like a McKnight or a Ford or someone like that, right? So let me ask you both to um, talk a little bit more about this donor advised thing that is broader than this conversation, but I think very much impacts what's happening here, that um, many of us have been concerned for a while that the amount of money that is flowing into donor advised funds uh, intentionally to obfuscate or not, uh, one could argue, but nevertheless, having that impact that uh, the, these, um, the amount of money in community foundations is perhaps larger um, than it has been for a while, and the amount of money going out um, not keeping pace with that. And I think seeing that, that disparity happening and looking at, well, where is some of that money being granted if it's being granted? Because I don't see that level of clarity in the public data. So uh, I guess, Brian, let me ask you to start with that because it may, you as the research person here, maybe know more. Is there a way to disaggregate um, the impact of donor advised funds specifically against other money that might be being held by that community foundation? Yeah, that's a good question. I'll, I'll answer that, but then I'm also going to I'm gonna kick it over to Janae to talk a little bit about how our members think about donor advised funds, because I think yeah. it's, a, it's a really useful perspective, too. So you're correct that the current public data uh, from Candid and, and you know, from IRS and other places does not do a great job of disaggregating um, discretionary grant making from donor advised grant making. Um, and it's something that NCRP is thinking about. It's something we're talking about with our partners at Candid and elsewhere, how to uh, how we should tackle that problem. You know, I think that um, it's definitely a problem that needs to be tackled and, and we're thinking about it. I don't have a good answer for, for what we do next, but Steve, I do just want to share again one more anecdote, which is that, you know, one of the things that, again, we heard from community foundations who were, who were, um, whose feathers were ruffled by this research was like, you know, this includes our discretionary and our donor advised grant making. You've not distinct, you've not differentiated between the two, which is again, not fair to us. And, and Steve, I actually heard a, a, a staff person from a donor or from a community foundation say um, it, on a phone call where it was not just me and this person, <laughs> there were others there, um, basically that it was, it was not fair for us to hold them responsible for their donors not wanting to give money to support work by and for Black people. That like, essentially, it, it's not my fault that our donors are racist. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, actually, it is your fault, is, was my response. <laughs> like, you know, that, like your, your job is to, if, you're, if your job as a community foundation is to nurture philanthropy, most, you know, so many of them have these missions that are like, to nurture philanthropy in the Tri-Cities or whatever it might be, right? Like, that includes educating your donors about racial equity, racial justice, and the, the sort of um, the debt that, that, that your community owes to people of color and to Black people especially. And so, so I think the DAF discretionary distinction is really important. It's important for how we influence grant making. It's important for how we raise money, obviously, um, which I'll go, come back to in a second. But I think for when it comes to understanding like the long-term impact of, of grant making by community foundations, I personally am, am never, I think, going to be um, swayed by the argument that like we, the community foundation, don't have, shouldn't be held responsible for, for our donor advised grant making because not only is that, um, you know, legally uh, inaccurate, um, I think it's also ethically and politically um, right. irresponsible and, and inaccurate. But, but I think on the topic of fundraising, I, I want to kick, kick it to Janae to talk a little bit about our donors because one of the one of the ways that I've heard um, that, that I heard donor advised funds described from a fundraising perspective once by a former colleague of mine, Dan Pietagorski, um, was that they're sort of the the um, gated community of philanthropy mm-hmm. and. Um, 
I think, you know, I'd, I'd love for Janae just to talk a little about like what she's been hearing from our members around fundraising from donor advice funds, because I think it, it's, it's useful context. Yeah, so um, I would 100% agree with that. I think donor advice funds are still, uh, in many ways, the new kids on the block. And so mm -hmm. as nonprofit organizations are, you know, learning more about, you know, regular institutional funding that's available and learning the ins and out there and trying to get access to, uh, you know, the, uh, the process of applying for grants and such. Uh, this just adds another barrier because, again, they have to figure out how in the world do I get access to these staffs. And so if you're not someone who's already, you know, well connected, um, if you don't have information on that specific uh, community foundations process, then you're kind of, you know, just left out without even knowing who you can go to for additional information. So we had um, one of our allies within a community foundation come and talk to our members, and it was just a really fruitful conversation. Um, you know, outside of the donor advised funds conversation, but of course that was something that was brought up. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, you know, people want to know how in the world they can access uh, this money. Right. And to, again, that gets back to that transparency and accountability piece that if, uh, if these community foundations are going to, um, well, I'll go ahead and use the term enrich themselves because by holding on to this money, of course, they're 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 making their own management fees off of uh, having these resources that are not being as fully dispersed into the community as they might be if they hadn't been coming in that way. Um, there is some culpability there, I think, and I think it's important for all of us to look at the data that you've pulled together in the Black Funding Denied Report, understand it as best we can with the challenges that it comes with, but then start asking those questions of, okay, uh, let, let's talk about about how, um, how many applications you were getting from Black-led organizations that would have been focusing on um, Black community members and, and beneficiaries versus these others that got funded instead. Let's talk about money that was coming in from donor-advised funds that you're holding on to and not dispersing into community. Let's talk about the money that is dispersed and where that is going. And there's so much more uh, to do. And I'm so glad that the NCRP is out here keeping this conversation moving forward into these equity spaces so that we can all learn more and try to take better action when we have conversations on these. Unfortunately, we are about out of time today. So I will uh, ask either or both of you, if you have just a, a, a very short wrap up or any next steps or resources you'd like to point out to people before we have to wrap it up. I'll just say, you know, I think you're seeing now in the, in the breadth and um, depth of policy proposals coming out of some of the advocates in the sector around regulating donor advised funds that I think this is a conversation that we're that's really just beginning um, and I think you know we'll have to we'll have to stay tuned and see how community foundations as a specific constituency in that policy conversation react I suspect it's going to be a negative reaction but I would just say like as far as next steps go uh, I would encourage everyone to you know follow NCRP but also be sure that they're following our colleagues in this space. Again, the mm -hmm. Philanthropic Initiative for Racial Equity is a key player in this space. ABFI um, is a key player in this space. And I want to call out one specific uh, report, recent report that I thought was fabulous on this topic that I would encourage everyone to read, which was called Pocket Change. And it was a report by the Ms. Foundation for Women um, on the state of grant making support for um, women and girls of color specifically. Um, and they have some great stats in there about women and girls of color led organizations and how they fare in the fundraising game that I think is really, really useful. So that's, that's the last word from me, Janae, anything from you? 
Yeah, I just want to thank you for having us on. And um, again, if there are any nonprofits out there, any folks who are fundraisers within their organizations who are feeling isolated, who don't understand what's happening in philanthropy, who just needs, um, you know, a, a group of people who are working towards changing the sector to make it more equitable, feel free to reach out to us. Um, you can reach us at membership at ncrp.org. And our website also has tons of resources. And we create those resources with you all in mind. So even if they are speaking to philanthropy, um, you can use them to speak to, uh, you know, just how great your work is and why you deserve to be to get funded. Outstanding. Janae Richmond is the Director of Marketing and Membership and Ryan Schlegel is Director of Research at NCRP. Both of you, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thank you. Thank you.